Hey there, welcome to the Collide podcast. This is Willow Weston, the founder and director of Collide. And if you're new around here, we absolutely love bringing you these podcasts every single week. I It's one of my favorite parts of my job. I love sitting across from people and hearing their story and hearing how God is running into their lives and showing up and doing beautiful things, bringing healing and purposing them and inviting them from places of despair and hopelessness into hope and goodness and using them in the world to do amazing things and Today, I got to interview Barb Hill, who is a writer and a licensed mental health therapist. And I have to say, I love sitting down with counselors. They have so much wisdom to teach and impart. And today was no different. Barb, who founded Holding Space Counseling, talks a lot about holding space in this interview. And I think we have a really hard time making space for ourselves and our own pain, and our own emotions, and our own process, and our own story, and our own disappointment. And she invites us in this interview to really challenge ourselves to grow in this area of our lives. So I hope you enjoy it, and here it is. Well, Barb, it is so fun to have you on. I love interviewing therapists. I I know it's not a free counseling session, but I feel like I learned so much and our listeners learned so much. So thank you for making space to hang out today. Of course. It's an honor to be here with you. Yeah. What led you to become a therapist? Oh, man, the golden question. Um, I feel like it was a series of many moments that all kind of added up together over time. Um. The short version is um, this very much, this profession very much feels like a round peg in a round hole for me. Um, Mm. Definitely one of those things that I feel like I meant um, to do. And I have had a few different professions in my life before I landed um, in the world of counseling and therapy. And I think the common thread in all of those different careers and professions was this passion to really help people, um, to come alongside them, to be a guide, to be a companion of sorts, to kind of call them up um, to the most whole and full version of themselves. So I think being a therapist is for me just the ultimate expression of that desire. Mm, I um, love so- that. Yeah, there's a lot that I could say about like the twists and turns of my journey and the details of it and kind of what ultimately landed me there. But I think like big picture that that's like the the heart behind it. Mm-hmm. Well, once we lock in and find that that place where we do feel like a round peg in a round hole, that's the best place to be. So I love that you have mm-hmm. found that. You are passionate about helping people navigate faith and mental health. And I thought about that as I read about you and, and thought about really how we so often sort of divide the two. And a lot of people think, oh, if I'm having mental health issues, I'm not having enough faith. Um, or if I had enough faith, I wouldn't have mental health issues. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Mm, I love this question. And yes, it's very true. I really just feel such a strong passion and draw to bringing these really important worlds together. Um, cause I don't think they've ever really been separate or they've never been meant to be separated. Um, cause when I, 
talk with clients, whether they're new clients that I may start working with or clients I've been with for forever, um, really understanding that they're a holistic being. They have a mind, they have a body, they have a heart, a spirit, um, and all of those different parts of them um, are unique and they have different needs and require different things. So I think my desire to approach life and uh, my therapeutic work and relationships and kind of every facet of my life in a holistic way really does kind of inform why bringing faith and mental health together is so important to me. Um, and I, I think like this kind of concept that um, if I had more faith, I wouldn't have mental health issues is a really harmful mm-hmm. uh, misconception in my opinion. Um, and I think, you know, our mental health and our faith are, again, in in my opinion, uh, meant to really work in tandem together. That um, if there's something going on mental health wise um, that doesn't communicate something negative about my faith, but I wonder how my faith can be an asset and a support in my mental health and then vice versa. If there's um, something like crisis of faith going on, it's going to affect my mental health, but I wonder if I can develop resources and resilience on the mental health side of things, how it can support my relationship with God. So I just really see how kind of the damaging effects of separating them and the benefits of keeping them married together and working in tandem with one another. I love that. I love the interplay that you described. And I think there has been so much sort of harmful mindsets around mental health in Christian community. And so often people have been invited to just, you know, just pray about that, or you should be over that. That was 10 years ago. Or if you had more faith, you wouldn't be depressed or you wouldn't have anxiety. And I actually think it takes great faith to look at our mental health to to take an inventory, to own where we're at, to look at where we want to be, to be brave, to say, God, I need you to enter into all of this and I need help. And that can be a very beautiful he- healing experience with the Lord. But I think he also uses therapists and, and meds and all sorts of things to help bring healing into our life. And so I love that you talk about the interplay of both. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. One thing that came to mind as you were sharing is um, I actually was invited about a year and a half ago to partner with a local church here. They actually have a college and their college partners with Southeastern University in Florida. And so I've been able to help lead their psychology practicum. And so these are students who are Christians um, who are going to a secular university, but really do want to marry psychology and faith together. So we've had so many conversations like this over the last year and a half. And one of the points that um, I've really drove home with them over and over again is that is the difference and importance of encounter versus process. So we have encounters with God, whether it's by ourselves or in community, at church, at a conference, and those encounters are catalytic. Like they're going to catalyze us into, um, you know, into a certain trajectory. And those those moments are incredibly important, um, but it doesn't negate the equal importance of then stepping into a process. Mm. So if you have this um, transformative encounter with the Lord um, in a moment, it's also important to walk it out. 
you know, to walk it out, work it out. So continuing to process that, whether with a therapist or with a friend or a mentor or whatever that looks like. And I think sometimes we, um, we feel like we have to choose, like the encounter should solve all the things or the process should solve all the things when really we, we do need both. We need like special encounters with God. And we also need to step into a process. And I think we're quick to maybe eliminate the process because it's messy. It's not glamorous. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. Um, but the good stuff happens in the process too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, it makes me think of Jesus in the New Testament. We talk all the time around here about colliding with Jesus, but when you see him collide with different people, he's actively having an encounter, a collision with them, but he's inviting the process. He's often inviting people to participate in their own healing, right? Like he'll ask someone to move. Like I think about the woman bent over by a spirit and she's been bent over for 18 years and he actually asked her to come forward, right? Like that she has to actually take a step and participate in a process. So I like, I like those words, encounter and process. That's a good reminder for those of us who need both. That's very cool. You call your practice holding space counseling. I'm curious why you chose that name. So I labored over the name of my practice because um, it felt like maybe not an equivalent to naming my firstborn child, but <laughs> something close. Um, <laughs> because it, I knew that it would reflect kind of like the heartbeat and the culture of the practice. And I just love the um, like holding space, like the nod to the really important part of the relationship between myself as a therapist and the client that my job is not um, to fix, to rescue, to always rush in and intervene. My, my role primarily is to create a safe place for whatever they need to process and a non-judgmental space Um Yes, a challenging space and it kind of exhortive state uh, space, but um, to hold the tension between um, like where they are and where they want to be, to hold the tension between um, myself and them, like it's holding this space and holding this tension and um, not rushing in to rescue and intervene, um, being available to support and to empathize. But um, and I think maybe given my natural tendencies to see someone in pain and wanting to rush in and like fix the pain or make it go away. I think it was also like a good reminder for me that like, that's not primarily your role. Like your role is actually to create a safe place for people to like work it out and um, to see that the tension and the discomfort that they feel is, um, is not a threat to their healing. It's actually a catalyst to their healing. And, um, so I just love like the nod to kind of the dynamic between myself and my clients and a reminder to myself that uh, of what my, you know, the highest form of like my role um, really is meant to be with the people that I work with. Mm, I I love that. I think so many people are so hungry for people to hold space for them. Mm. And it's almost like a lost art. It's almost like a thing where instead we're kind of like, hey, how are you? We don't really want to hear the answer or we want to solve the problem or we sort of want to fast forward the pain and get to the happily ever after. Here's the scripture, slap it on there, pray you're good. 
And I think a lot of our pain cannot be healed until we allow other people to hold space for it, until we hold space for it, until we hold space and invite Jesus into that space and into that pain. So it's sitting in it. It's sitting in the hard stuff and the ugly stuff and the origin and the mess. And so many of us have never had it done for us. So we don't know how to do it for others or for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of um, this really sweet um, narrated video that Brittany Brown, if you're familiar with her, she uh, created to illustrate the differences between empathy and sympathy. And she says towards the end that um, it's not necessarily responses that make a difference. It's connection. And I think holding space allows for connection. Um, whereas, you know, rushing in and fixing or bypassing, it drives disconnection. It doesn't actually allow a person to connect to themselves, to God, to, to the other person. Um, and I, I do think that in order to hold space for an, another person or for ourselves, um, it requires us to build a tolerance for our own emotions and our own discomfort. Cause I don't think we can extend that to another person if we aren't willing to build up the tolerance of that um, within ourselves. When you say that, how do we grow a tolerance for our own emotions? That's a really interesting phrase. I'm curious how we actually do that work. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I think part of it is simply allowing it to have a place when it shows up. Because reality is, is like, we're feeling emotions all day, every day. Um, but we have all kinds of strategies to like, uh, circumvent them, walk around them, sidestep them, suppress them. You know, we're just brilliant at like making sure we don't feel anything unpleasant. So I think part of it is this, um, kind of challenge and commitment to, Hey, when the sadness shows up, I'm going to go from doing whatever I normally do to letting it be here for, let's start with 30 seconds. Hmm. And then we go to a minute. And then we go to two and we just allow ourselves to feel it. Um, and the, the, the fear I often hear from clients when I say stuff like that is like, well, if I feel it, it's going to just take me over and then I will like become it. Like mm. I'll get stuck there. I won't be able to get out of it. And that's such a common misconception about emotions because the opposite, the opposite actually happens. So what I mean is when we refuse to feel, it builds up and then it takes over. But if we keep shorter accounts with our emotions, it actually won't take us over. It'll oh. build that resilience and that tolerance for feeling our emotions. Um, so I would say just start with exposing yourself to it a little at a time, letting it be there, letting it be present, even if it's for like a really short period of time. And then just like anything, building some reps, building some confidence, and it'll start to kind of correct this concept about emotions of like, instead of emotions are unsafe, emotions are dangerous, they can't be felt. Um, as you build this tolerance with it, you'll be like, oh, actually feeling my emotions, I survived that moment of feeling sad. I survived that moment of feeling lonely. Um, and I actually feel like a little bit of relief, like how ironic. Mm-hmm. It's so funny because as you're talking, I'm just hearing so many different women's voices in my life and that I work with who do this thing you're talking about of circumventing emotions where um, if they're feeling emotional, they 
they will even keep themselves from going and being around people because they might cry or, um, oh boy, oh, here it comes. I, you know, and so what causes us to start shaming our own emotions? Because I think that's a really interesting idea. In fact, today I was studying for our next conference and we're centering around the passage in scripture um, where the the sinful woman shows up to a party and um, she learns Jesus is going to be there and she's in a room full of a bunch of religious people and she's overcome with emotions and, and she starts weeping. Next thing you know, there's tears on Jesus' feet and she's wiping them. And you, you read this and I was reading, I was like, she's so overcome that it's almost like when you, you're, you feel so broken, you feel so emotional that you almost can't control yourself and it all comes out and then you feel this vulnerability hangover and you feel exposed and other people look at you like you're this big snotty mess. And I think we're so afraid of people seeing us sort of lose control or be vulnerable. And I'm curious, where did we pick this up? Mm. Ooh, I think that's a really great question. And I think it probably comes from a lot of different places. I mean, I obviously don't want to overgeneralize when it comes to, you know, church or Christian communities, but I, I think at least in my own experience, I've, I found that sometimes for reasons I don't fully understand, um, emotions are seen as unspiritual and, um, and can often be villainized and almost seen as something that needs to be overcome in order to, um, be uh, full of faith or to, you know, follow God the way that we're meant to. But like when I, when I evaluate Jesus's life, I do not see him uh, navigate his own emotions or the emotions of others in that way. I actually see him being incredibly compassionate and empathetic. And I see him weeping at Mm -hmm. Lazarus's grave. I see him like as a very emotive um, human being. And um, so the way Jesus modeled um, emotional health and relationship to his emotions is um, very different than I think it's often modeled or talked about in, unfortunately, in, in a lot of Christian communities. I think also like our society as a whole is is kind of hardwired to um, glorify like productivity. And sometimes we feel like you know, emotions slow you down. They, they keep you from being productive. And so we kind of glorify productivity and then we just, we medicate our emotions. We suppress them because they're just quote unquote getting in the way. So I think the negative messaging around emotions come from a lot of different places. Um, and then kind of ultimately lead to us not really having the skill set to relate to them the way that we need to. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Brackett wrote a book called Permission to Feel, and he talks about how emotions carry information. And the emo- the information that emotions carry is incredibly important. Um, and he talks about how it's r- going to be really tough for you to know what you need unless you know how you feel because our feelings alert us to our needs. So for instance, if you're feeling lonely, then that's probably alerting you to the need for connection. Um, and so I think we miss something really important when we villainize our emotions. Um, one of which is we don't 
really have a great idea of what we need if we're disconnected from how we feel. So kind of helps to correct some of that, like, oh, okay, like if I want to have clarity on what I need, Mm -hmm. it's going to require me to get in touch with how I feel. Mm -hmm. I think so many of us don't want to feel like we're too much. Mm-hmm. You know, and I so we sort of keep our emotions to ourselves so we're not too much for our in-laws, too much for our friends, whatever it is. I remember having my second kid and I was in the hospital and had a C-section, so I was there overnight and uh, this uh, for a couple of nights, actually. And this nurse comes in, she flips on the lights in the middle of the night and to check on Bella, my baby, and she... Bella starts crying and the nurse goes, pretty girls don't cry. And I I was so, I had just had a child and my hormones were crazy, but I was so mad. Like, what? Do not say pretty girls don't cry to my daughter because she is beautiful and it's okay to cry. But those kind of those kind of messages, the messaging that we say even to each other, that we don't realize what we're communicating when we say stuff like that. Pretty girls don't cry. Yes, they do. They absolutely do, right? So I love your invitation to grow in our tolerance of our own emotions. That's so good. If you love this podcast and the work Collide is doing to impact lives, would you consider partnering with us? We rely entirely on the generous support of donors to fuel the life-changing work we do to create spaces for women to collide with Jesus in the midst of their brokenness. And you can be part of that work. Your generous donations help us send women to counseling who couldn't otherwise afford it, help us to create content to bring hope to the hurting, and to create spaces for women to connect in community. Will you join our efforts to bring hope and healing to hurting women by giving a financial gift? Simply text GIVE to 1-888-364-4483 for more information about giving. Thank you. I have so many things I want to talk to you about, but I have to um, switch gears here because I want to make sure that we spend some time talking about your upcoming book called Seasons of Waiting. Can you share with us what it's about? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's actually been out for not very long, for just a little bit, a little shy of a year, actually. Um, And it's called Seasons of Waiting, an Invitation to Hope. And it's a devotional format, and it's centered around this topic and this experience of waiting. And it follows the physical season. So there's um, devotions that were intentionally chosen to sit in each season to Mm. kind of like further communicate what it feels like to wait in a fall season versus a winter, spring and summer. And the devotions are so much a reflection of um, one, how I sit with people as a therapist. It's interactive, it's collaborative, it's honoring them as a holistic being, it's bringing in faith and mental health and really marrying those together. It's personal. I'm sharing uh, personal stories of my own navigation of waiting and how it's challenged me and transformed me. And there's a real intentional journey that I'm hoping the reader goes on as they move through the seasons that they start in fall and, you know, fall, the mirror, the seasons are wonderful because they help to kind of mirror for us what 
is going on inside. So in fall, and we might be in a place where we're in transition, we're in limbo. There's a lot that maybe has attached itself that needs to be released, that needs to be let go, whether it's limiting beliefs about ourselves, some shame that's attached itself to us through through waiting season. So whether that's waiting for to start a family, waiting for a healing in your body, waiting for a restoration in a relationship, waiting to um, get married, like regardless of the waiting experience you're navigating, it's recognizing that there comes a point where um, some things start to attach themselves that actually don't serve us anymore. Mm -hmm. And this invitation that fall gives us to release those things, winter being a more vulnerable time, um, often uh, a more a time that involves maybe some grief around your waiting. Um, things feel bare. Um, things maybe don't feel as hope filled, and it really is an invitation to dig deeper. Um, and then spring, there's often this like resurgence of hope, and we see that happening in the world when things are blooming and coming back to life. And then summer kind of evokes this like lightheartedness that um, we've actually gained by going through all of the previous seasons that mm. there's this almost like renewed youthfulness and this lightheartedness that's come through going through all of these, um, in some ways more challenging seasons, there's a resilience, there's a maturity. And ultimately what I hope for the reader to land with is, um, a more fruitful experience of waiting that, um, I really do believe that God cares about what we care about. And he also cares, um, about, the transformation of our character and our heart. And he holds both of those together. I don't know that he elevates one over the other. I think he cares about both. And I really try to communicate that through the book. Mm, I love that so much. I'm curious, what made you write this book? I mean, have you experienced a season of waiting that was disorienting for you? Absolutely. <laughs> I think I've experienced, uh, you know, many different seasons of waiting, but you know, I think the one that's stuck with me for a long time is really waiting for, um, to start a family of my own. Um, I've done so many amazing things. I've, you know, gone to school, I've become a therapist. I've lived in many different places. I have a business, like a lot of things that I'm so grateful for. And there's been this one unfulfilled area of my life, this like deferred hope area of, you know, getting married and starting a family and seeing that part of my life um, take shape and materialize. And so um, through those different years of waiting for that, I have been so deeply challenged by it. It's brought up so much. Um, waiting is such a refining experience. It challenges our need for control. Mm. It challenges our discomfort with uncertainty. Um, it causes us to ask all kinds of questions and spin all kinds of stories about, well, if I was good enough, then it would happen. If um, it just, it's amazing how much waiting uh, surfaces in us and is therefore able to refine in us. And so I think because there was such a pain point around my own experiences of waiting and really kind of looking around being like, I don't know if there's a resource out there that that really speaks to how challenging waiting truly is and offers a perspective that as much as waiting feels like it's taking something from you or withholding something from you, what if waiting actually has something to give you, has something to offer you that there's like a gift kind of like hidden within that experience. And I really 
do believe, and I've seen it for myself, that every time I can redefine waiting, I can um, reassess my experience of waiting, then I can, I can experience it totally differently and I can engage it differently. And, um, yeah, there's a whole lot more that I could say, but yeah, hundred percent is coming from a deeply personal place. Mm. I, I love that question. What if waiting has something to give you when you think about the waiting experience that you've had, what has it given you? Mm-hmm. I think it's given me a depth of compassion. I think it's given me resilience, um, not getting things on my terms, on my timeline has required me to take a nice look at myself. Mm. What, what happens for me when I don't get what I want, when I want, um, and it's given me like a, um, a humility. It's, um, and it really has like, I owe a lot as much as I would never have asked for it. I owe a lot to waiting in terms of the development of my character. And I think it's also allowed me to live a really full life in a lot of other areas that certainly does not take away the pain um, in this area that hasn't been fulfilled. But I think it's allowed me opportunities to um, be in people's lives in a way that I don't know that I would have been able to. And again, it's not a bypassing. It's, I think it's just a recognition of um, opportunities that I've been given because of waiting season. So um, I think it's done a lot in me and then it's done a lot um, in terms of the life that I've had access to and been able to live in the meantime. Hmm. Hmm. I love how you're reframing the idea of waiting. I think for a lot of people, at least that I uh, work with around here at Clyde, there's a lot of women where the waiting creates some real hangups with God. Like, where is God? Why isn't he doing anything? Why hasn't he answered my prayers? He knows the desires of my heart. And he's a no-show. And so how do you navigate that with the women you work with? And how do you encourage them in that place where the waiting's developing some like real sort of God issues? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so many of the devotions in the book um, is me sharing moments just like that, where I'm like, God, what in the world? Like, where are you? Why have you no-showed one million times in this area? Um, so I'm really, really honest and real about um, the challenges that waiting has presented to my view of God and my relationship with Him. And um, and I think that's part of the transformative journey that I really laid out in the book that similar to how I would sit with a client, I would sit with them in an empathetic way of that sucks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is hard. Mm -hmm. And that is confusing. And that, and actually like sitting with and honoring the pain and the grief of asking those questions of God, where are you? Where have you been? Why have you not provided? Why have you not shown up? So sitting, sitting with that, um, and then engaging it, um, because I think the tendency is to 
lean into anxiety and striving or to pendulate to powerlessness and helplessness and just shutting down, shutting down from God, shutting down our desires. Because, you know, one of the devotions that are in there talks about how dangerous and complicated hope feels when you've been disappointed chronically. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I would hope that people would find a lot of solace and a lot of kind of me too experience in reading the book because I really don't sugarcoat that experience with God. Um, and I, um, I encourage people to, like you said, reframe their waiting so that they can see, Hmm, I wonder if there's something about God in this that I haven't been able to see. And if that's true, then I wonder what's possible and how I feel about him in this. Mm-hmm. Well, time can be such a gift in life where we can look back on old chapters and see seasons of waiting, and we can see it so differently, and we can see what God was doing or what came out of that place. But when you're in that desperate place of not being where you want to be and you can't see God anywhere, it can feel so despairing and I I think it's the same thing we've been talking about in this whole interview, which is holding space, right? Holding, holding space for yourself in the waiting, holding space for God, telling God how you really feel in the waiting is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, I, I think it's remembering or realizing maybe for the first time that God isn't intimidated by you laying it all out on the line, by you really telling him how you feel and being um, completely and totally honest with him. And because we, we kind of come to God with um, like these religious platitudes, you know, of like for fear of, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I think I really do believe that God wants to know how you feel. Mm -hmm. I think God wants you to be really honest with himself because being honest with him is a byproduct of also being honest with ourselves. And I think he cares about that. And that's part of the transformation of like, okay, I'm going to be honest with myself. This really hurts and I don't know what to do with it. And I feel really bitter and resentful. And I don't, I'm like, I want to be connected to God, but I feel like he continually lets me down. So I feel stuck. I don't know what to do there. And just pouring it out, um, not only with God, but with a therapist, with a mentor, with somebody that can hold space for you and not try to fix it or rescue you or slap something on it that makes them probably feel better. Um, But just to like be in that with you. And I have found that you're not in that suspended state forever, that some vision or insight or breakthrough comes when we really get honest with God in ourselves, that there is a pivot, there is a turn um, where there's like some sort of hope or some sort of like flicker of like, okay, maybe I'll move in this direction. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think about how to word what I'm thinking, but it feels like God never asks us to give up hope, but he might ask us to shift what we're hoping for. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a time where 
a woman maybe comes to a point in the waiting where she's like, do I keep risking hoping in this thing that I had my mindset on that I, that I want? And I, I saw it going this way and, and I've waited and I've worked for it and I've prayed for it and I keep not experiencing it. And do I keep hoping in that? Or a time where she begins to let go of hoping in that one way, that one thing, and shifting into hoping in something else. Do you know what I'm talking about? That moment where, you know, how does a woman know if she's to keep on hoping in this thing that she's hoped for that isn't, hasn't come yet versus mm-hmm. shifting her hope and, and placing it? in something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's speaking to like a really honest part of the waiting process. And it it reminds me of one of the devotions that I wrote that um, I share about how I'm on a walk and I kind of was getting to that place where I'm like, you know, God, I don't want to continue to hope for something that you don't intend on showing up and coming through on. Mm -hmm. Um, And the dilemma for me in, in that moment, but also for a long time before that moment was I thought, well, if I, if I release this to you, God, and I let go of it, that means it won't happen. But if I, if I keep it in my white knuckle death grip, then it will happen Hmm. somehow. Like if I'm anxious about it or striving for it or maintaining control over it, then it will happen. But if I actually um, release it to you, then that will equal it not happening. And it was like Mm -hmm. such a misconception that God needed to correct for me that actually the rest that I'm really needing as I'm waiting or as I'm seeking God for this will be available in the release. Um, but there was a dilemma for me. I'm like, if I release it, then I would get rest. But if I get rest, that means that I won't get what I am hoping for. So then Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I can't release it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And therefore I forfeit rest because, so there was just, and I think that dilemma exists in a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think maybe breaking that misconception that if you, if you release your death grip to this, that doesn't mean it's going to equal not happening. It, what it does mean though, is that you'll have rest in your soul, you'll have peace and, um, you'll be able to see God provide for you. Um, and you'll be able to see him really show up for you. And not to say that like him showing up because is contingent upon you in some workspace way. But I, I think God does want to re, I think he does want to validate and reaffirm the moments where you release because, it communicates grace and that's what he's all about. He's like, I want to show up for you on the back end of you releasing this because that proves to you that you don't have to strive for this, um, that I actually want to show up for you. And I actually want to pour out my provision and grace for you. Um, so, I mean, that's the devotional that comes to mind and in that really like kind of granular part of waiting or that like kind of complex part of waiting that we all arrive to at some point in our lives. And I know for me, that was kind of like the transformative moment that I'm like, okay, um, all I know is that I want you, God, and I want rest. And um, thank you for correcting this concept that I had that to choose you and to choose surrender would mean that I would forfeit my desires um, that you're, you're a God that's big enough to provide for me, even if it takes on a different form than I anticipated. 
And you're also big enough to give me rest in the process. Mm. Well, I have to ask you before we close up today, Barb, you shared about having this desire to start a family and you're in this waiting process. Are you still in that waiting process or where are you at with that story? Mm, yeah, I I am. And um, I think I have like, um, over this last year of releasing the book, um, there were some interesting things that happened in my personal life at the same time, kind of coinciding with the release of this book that I've had to orient myself back to God and, and honestly, back to all the things that I wrote in that book. Mm. <laughs> like, I, you know, you write these things and then you almost re-experience them all over again. Mm. And, um, so yes. And I think I'm experiencing like a really new and interesting iteration of my, of waiting, um, with God. And, um, I think the, the, the misconception that I was just talking about, I've kind of almost experienced in a fresh new way of God saying like, I'm big enough to do both. Like I'm big enough for you, you know, my God kind of communicating to me that I want you to detach your worth and your identity from this thing mm-hmm. um, happening. And by detaching it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. It just means that you're actually going to be really free and peace-filled um, at whatever time that that enters your life. Um, so yes, I am still waiting for those things. And um, re-experiencing everything that I wrote in that book. And that that's, you know, that's the interesting thing about the book is that I wrote it as a person, not on the other side. I wrote it as a person who was like in the trenches. Mm-hmm. And I think it really did influence um, just the energy and the heart behind what was communicated. Well, mad props to you because I think a lot of people write books or think they have the authority to write once they get their happily ever after story, then they think they can preach about whatever it is that they're sharing with the world. And I think it's so, so brave and so very cool that we get to learn from someone who's waiting with us, talking to us about waiting. So I think that's brave. I think it's authentic. And I know people will want to grab hold of your book. So how can they do that? Mm. So they can pick it up um, at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Walmart, all the places that they would normally buy books. Um, yeah. Awesome. Barb, thank you for hanging out today and sharing your heart and a bit of your story and and about your new book. Very cool. Of course. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, it was awesome. Friend, I hope that you got some wisdom that you can put in your back pocket and take with you this week. I truly loved how she talked about how we have encounters with Jesus, encounters with God that change us and heal us, but He also invites us into a process. And if He's invited you into a process to walk towards wholeness and you feel overwhelmed, I hope that you can be encouraged. I hope that you can see that he's showing up. I hope that you can know that you have a community here at Collide of people who truly are in process. I know I am in process, always looking for God to show up and help heal the hurting parts of my heart that need his healing. And truly, I feel like every single day I have to battle 
beliefs that are old beliefs that don't do me any good. And I have to say yes to God's healing in my life. And I just invite you to join me and so many around here at Clyde. We have a wholeness and counseling program. We have a bajillion resources to help you. We also have our counseling bundle, which is an online course you can take and spend time with. I think it's like 11 different mental health therapists and it covers a range of topics. So check that out if you want to say yes to that being a part of your process. We have a manager anxiety guide, which is also a collaboration of different mental health therapists who put together their wisdom on how to manage the anxiety that slips into our lives. We have so many resources for you around here. So check it out at wecollide.net. And I hope this week you keep colliding and encountering this Jesus who loves you and says you are worthy of wholeness. You are worthy of His healing. You are worthy of His love, just as you are. And He might invite you to walk a process, but it's only because He wants the best for you, friend. So keep gliding, and we'll catch you next week.